Jerry O'Hanlon, you're an Irish Jesuit theologian. You were quoted in the speech by former Irish President Mary McAleese yesterday speaking at the Voices of Faith International Women's Day Conference. She was supposed to be speaking in the Vatican. Her invitation was withdrawn by Cardinal Farrell and the Jesuits gave them the building in the Jesuit Curia, very near the Vatican, the big hall, where you were in 1995 and talking about the whole issue of women in the church. Tell me about that and why she, you think you were quoted and what she was saying. Yeah, it was part of a movement if you like, that had begun in Ireland back in the late 80s and 90s, a lot of feminist theology in Milltown Park in particular. And a group of us um, had got together. Tim Hamilton was involved then, a Jesuit, Frank Salmon, uh, Brian Lennon, uh, and laterally Bill Toner and myself. And we produced a series of pamphlets on solidarity and then particularly on women in the church. That one on women in the church was in response to a reaction by theologians, women theologians in Milltown and working class women in North Dublin at her lack of dimension in the Solidarity book. So that was on my mind when I went to the congregation and at an early point I introduced it as a possible topic and there was a vote on it. It narrowly got through as a, as a topic and then in the course of the um, 10 weeks of the congregation with other people various drafts of the um, decree were written and in the end it, it got through the congregation. Now, she quoted from that, mm. and it's quite, maybe you might just t- talk a wee bit about what, what you said in that. This was a meeting of Jesuits from all around the world who meet when they're, when the general either retires or dies to elect another general, and you were a delegate from Ireland. Yeah, this particular congregation wasn't because a general had retired or, or was dying, it was just a time to look at the whole society. We have those congregations as well in between, because Calvin Mack was still there and he'd been a long time there. And I went as a delegate from the Irish province. Lawrence Murphy was the provincial at the time and Philip Harnett was president of the European provincials. He was also there. I suppose the Jesuits found it a bit difficult to talk about this because they wondered why men should be talking about the issue of women in the church. And we were trying to persuade them that it was our responsibility too, that in fact we were part of a culture, if you like. People talked about technically in terms of patriarchy, but whether we wanted to be part of it or not, whether it was conscious or not, we were part of a culture within the church which marginalised women and kept them in a subordinate role. So... At first, it didn't seem possible we could talk about that because the whole issue of ordination of women, for example, couldn't be talked about at the time. But we found a way to express our own complicity, if you like, collusion in the culture, to express our our real gratitude for uh, the, the role that women had in the church and to commit ourselves, if you like, to listen more carefully to the experience of women and to do all in our part to change the situation. And towards the end of the decree, we do mention that other issues will mature in time and that we need very carefully to listen to the signs of the times while being faithful to church teaching and to try to negotiate that tension. And of course, the issue of the ordination of women was being alluded to indirectly there, among other issues. And, and some of the issues, and Mary McAleese raised them herself yesterday, about power for women in the church, decision-making, that they have no way of inputting in, and that came across very strongly in her talk yesterday. You know, she talked about be, we were, women were described by the Pope as a, as a mystery by John Paul II, and she said, we're not a mystery, just talk to us. And that what women were looking for was equality. 
Was that reflected in the document that you uh, produced, at least that sensibility to women gaining some kind of autonomy and power and input into the Catholic Church? Yes, it was. And it was mentioned particularly in terms of Jesuit works that women should have that kind of input. But I suppose as well, we were conscious and the canon lawyer from America, Ladislaw Sorcius, brought this as well, that in canon law, there's quite a difficulty about lay participation, never mind just women's participation, in decision-making. So in the new code in 1983, they introduced this canon 129, which in fact was regressive in terms of allowing lay participation and power, not to mention the participation of women. So we were conscious of that um, at the time. And I, I suppose as things developed after that, things got even more tight, if you like, in that particular area. So it was a great relief then when the current Pope came in. I think his own culture in Latin America leads him to say some things which in our to our ears sound a bit quaint and even grating, you know. So when he talks about the uh, genius, the feminine genius, for example, which also John Paul II it does tend to mystify women in a way that a lot of women find uh, not helpful, that it's not dealing with the real world. But what he has done is to say from the very start in the first interview he gave with the Jesuits in September after he was elected, repeated in the joy of the gospel, that he wants a more incisive, visible role for women in the church and one that includes decision making. And he's made very small steps along that road in terms of putting women in senior positions in Vatican congregations. But I think his way of going about this is a much bigger vision for the way the church teaches and makes decisions. And that's his whole idea of a synodal church. Well, can you explain that bigger vision? Because certainly in her speech, Mary McAleese was seemed to be really addressing Pope Francis a lot mm. of the time and not mm. always very favourably. Mm. I know she had swipes at him about talking about mm. women theologians being the strawberries on the cake. Mm -hmm. I presume that is part of that mm. quaint kind of reflection. Mm. But she did call on him to, mm. quoting that line you've quoted, mm. to start putting in place mm. some processes. Mm. Talk about that wider vision then that mm. you think he has that might mm. help that decision-making process for women to take place. I think what he's trying to say is that it's not good for one person acting as a kind of a monarch to be taking all these decisions, that the church is bigger and different from that. And historically, we know, particularly in the first millennium, it was councils of the church, sometimes with presence of lay people at those councils, which made important decisions on teaching or on discipline. So he wants to envisage a situation where, for example, on teaching, you'd have a real attention to the sense of the faithful is the thing. It's, it's what people experience, baptised people in their ordinary lives. Not necessarily opinion polls, though opinion polls can be helpful, but trying to discern, is the, is the word he uses, a very well-known Jesuit word, trying to discern authentically what people experience is true. And then to put that in dialogue with theologians and their understanding of tradition and their understanding of scripture. And then the third partner in that conversation is the bishops and the pope. So the bishops and the pope would have a final say mostly subject to revision. There's very few infallible statements, but there'd be all, it would always be a three-fold conversation. And I suppose in relation to the specific issue that Mary McAleese has raised, it does seem that there's a strong discontent among ordinary Catholics about the non-ordainability of women, that they don't feel comfortable with that. And that's an old teaching in Catholic theology about reception, that if the thing is not received, and there's a good document from the 
International Theological Commission about that, then you have to reconsider. You have to see, have you got it right, rather than saying we're not communicating it well. That could be a lack of communication, but it could also be that maybe that needs revision. Theologically, that would be, be the first strand, what the people think. Theologically, I'd say the weight of theological opinion is that there aren't convincing reasons given to support this teaching. From the point of view of the bishops, they've and this is really a centralised thing because it's come very much from, from previous popes, they have taken a very absolute position. So there's a real difficulty there. Yeah, because didn't John Paul say we really shouldn't even be discussing the issue? That was, that was, and hmm. is, does that still hold? Has that been rescinded? Can another pope rescind that? Or is it just by practice? Because really mm. largely people have begun to ignore that, except mm. in public, you know, mm. where priests mm. feel under pressure then. Mm. Yet there does seem to be a different feel under Pope Francis that you're not going to be hauled mm. before the Inquisition, as it were. Mm. Well, I mean, people have done their best to get around that in subtle ways. There's a good Carmelite theologian, uh, Chris O'Donnell, he's written an encyclopedia on the church. He's a very good piece on that. He said, OK, given what the Pope has said, uh, it wouldn't be good to say he's wrong. And so at the level of... Um, Bernard Lonigan distinguished between understanding and judgment. The level of judgment, you're not free anymore to say just the Pope is wrong. But what you are free to do is to operate at the level of understanding and say, I don't really get the reasons why he's made this judgment, if you like. They don't sound convincing to me, and here's why they don't sound convincing. So a good theologian will be able to look at those reasons and try to weigh them to and fro. And... I think that's the kind of thing which Francis would be comfortable with, you know. So, uh, uh, but I do think the larger point holds that on all these issues, whether it be to do with uh, homosexuality, to do with women priests, to do with married priests, the preferred way for Francis to operate is to do it by a process rather than a centralised diktat. And for example, on the issue of married priests, he has referred the issue back to the priests in Brazil, particularly around the Amazonian basin, and they're having a synod on this, and he wants them to come up with some kind of recommendation that he can then, if you like, allow other churches to look at and try to moderate, if you like, a discussion within the Catholic Church. And that's very much what happened with regard to the issue of divorced and remarried Catholics with access to communion. I think they tried to do a bit on the issue of gay Catholics and it was too contentious. And I think you, you'll get that. There's 1.2 billion Catholics in the world, as, as Mary McAleese said. The situations and the cultures are very different. And if you think of a large family trying to discuss this together, there will be certain difficulties at certain times about sensitive issues. But the great thing is if you can create a situation where they are discussing it together as opposed to just passively accepting or not accepting a teaching which comes from on high. And that's the kind of church he wants to introduce at local level, parishes, at diocesan level, at conference level of bishops and then at Rome. I think that's a much more profound way of going at things, if you like, than a quick fix diktat which could be overturned by the next person. Doing that nonetheless, one gets the impression that he is meeting with huge resistance, oh, mm. both from within his own curia mm. 
and very strong resistance, the four cardinals who put in the dubia against mm-hmm. about the possibility of mm-hmm. people in second unions mm-hmm. receiving communion. Mm-hmm. And you can see from the Amoris Letizia that he wanted people to discuss that, but mm-hmm. instead he gets a, uh, mm-hmm. that slapped at him. Mm-hmm. And also on a wider area, very powerful right-wing groups, mm-hmm. you know, without labelling, but they are, and mm-hmm. would describe themselves, probably be happy with that, mm-hmm. who are seriously challenging Mm -hmm. the Pope. Mm -hmm. And we saw that as exemplified even in the pressure to withdraw pictures Mm -hmm. from the World Meeting Families in Dublin from the very Mm -hmm. test book, Exer cutting out of the inclusivity that the bishop spoke about, about different types of families. Mm -hmm. So it's not not easy. And there's a lot of resistance to what Mm -hmm. Pope Francis may be Mm -hmm. trying to do. Yeah, I, th- I think you're perfectly right. And the resistance comes in two main fashions, if you like. One is outright resistance and a lot of the groups you're talking about. The other is a kind of apathy or a failure to engage or even a passive aggression that you just don't get involved. You keep your head down and so on. I don't think he's phased by the outright opposition. If you look back to church history, there's always been this kind of conflict and turmoil. And in the great debates of the 4th century, for example, St. Athanasius, who ended up on the winning side, was actually exiled five times from Alexandria. Such was the vehemence of the um, conflict and, and so on. So he said a number of times about that, that he welcomes people who are up front. I think more disquieting, if you like, is the just lack of engagement in some kind of way. And I'd be a bit disappointed with the Irish church on that score. I think there's been... Uh, a lot of surfing the waves, if you like, of Francis's popularity, but a failure to really look deeper and see what he's getting at. He has said the church for the third millennium is a synodal church. It's a collegial church. You need to have councils, you need to have institutions where people talk to one another, where those three branches, the sense of the faith for the theologians and the bishops are in constant kind of conversation, however one sets that up. We've suggested in the ACP, and the numbers have been doing this for a long time, that there should be regular assemblies or synods in dioceses and then at a national level where these things can be processed and results can be filtered back to Rome and shared with other churches so that gradually you get a momentum building up which creates a teaching which is more in tune with the signs of the times as well as being faithful to the gospel. And I've I've been disappointed at the failure, with some honourable exceptions. Yeah, Bishop Brendan Leahy did the synod down in Limerick and very well, did it very well. Um, there's been a number of listening exercises in other uh, dioceses. But you get the sense that the conference as a whole and some of the major dioceses then, including uh, the Archdiocese of Dublin and um, Armagh, uh, are not really grasping the nettle and running with that. And I think it could give such energy to the Irish church if they did it. People are crying out to have a voice. And many of those who are crying out have left and have lost interest, but might be enticed back if they felt that they were really seriously going to be listened to. Are you hopeful? Because... This in 19, Mary McAleese is quoting a document in 1995, mm. and it is interesting that you met with huge resistance at the start, and yet mm. that document got through. Mm. Yet we are now in 2018, mm-hmm. and nothing seems to have shifted in regard, say, even to that very important issue of women and other issues like the LGBT issue. 
it's not the only thing. There are plenty of other things that we, you know, need to talk about, lay, like lay inclusivity mm-hmm. and having mm-hmm. a part, decision making, which is crucial. Mm-hmm. Are you hopeful that um, things are changing or could we be seeing somebody else in another 20 years quoting from that uh, document and saying we need to do there needs to be change? I'm very hopeful. Am I optimistic? I don't know. What I mean by that is that I think Francis is trying to revive the spirit of Vatican II. And that was very much saying lay people have a very central role. And as Eve Congar said, your first reality is as a baptised person. That's the ontological reality. Being a priest or a bishop or religious is very much secondary. So I think he's trying to revive that spirit of a more collegial um, church on the road together, as Jesus was with his disciples toing and froing, Jesus learning from people that he met as well as teaching. He's trying to retrieve that. And it's a real opportunity, but he can't do that on his own. And Mary MacLeese is right to be impatient with the scale of progress, if you like. But I think it may be unfair just to point the finger at him. He's inviting the rest of us, but particularly then the bishops, to engage with this and to galvanise it. And I think if they can do, and there are signs in other parts of the church of them doing that, in Germany, in France, in, in, in Latin America, if we can somehow catch on to that. And I think it's not a failure of uh, goodwill. It's maybe a failure as much of imagination as anything else, that people are stuck, bishops in particular, are stuck in old ways of thinking, decades of unthinking deference to what Rome said and now they're being asked to think for themselves and they don't quite know how to adjust to that. Uh, So I think uh, men and women, lay men and women in particular and and priests and religious have a role in trying to impress on the bishops that they want change and that Francis's way of doing it is what they want. They want to be in a conversation that matters, that isn't just ticking boxes and listening exercises for the sake of it and moving off and nothing happens. They want some reality about this. And if that happens, I think uh, the spirit is certainly stirring there and uh, there, there, be, there could be a real springtime in the church.